the narrative, the story of the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, with who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the end. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that, which, that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, with which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God, for they had heard and seen as, they had, as, as it has been told told them. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. A familiar story to most of us, yet seems to be forgotten throughout, rest, throughout most of the year, except maybe around December. Yet each time as we read it, we can read it in a way as if it is afresh and it's anew because of such an astounding, an amazing turn of events. Now, Luke doesn't, doesn't uh, spare us from the historical details. In fact, from the details that he gives us, you can almost pinpoint the very time of the birth of Christ in this very small town in Israel to, according to the world, nobodies. It's remarkable. 
the surrounding of the birth of Jesus we see in the context of Caesar Augustus was emperor of Rome. And he is one of the most important and powerful Roman emperors in the history of the Roman Empire. Augustus was not a name that was given or was not a name that he made up for himself necessarily like a last name, but it was a title, a title that he came up with, that they came up with of, of deity, that this emperor is holy and revered, Caesar Augustus Dominus et Deus, holy Lord and God is what it means. Caesar Augustus was was more than an emperor, but was seen as a God and Savior of Rome. And in the context of this story, in, in order to consolidate the empire, he introduced this new taxation, and he ordered everybody to go back to their hometown, their family's origin, to be, to be registered. And that's where we see Mary and Joseph come into the story who are living in Nazareth and are about to have this baby we talked about was told of Mary by the angel Gabriel and they were going to have to make this 80 mile journey as she is about eight nine months pregnant now if most of our little nativity scenes are correct then then Mary would have had an animal to ride and I'm still not sure if that's better than just walking when you're uh, when, you're, when you're pregnant, but traveling these dusty roads, she must have wondered with each and every stop, every step, would she make the next one? And as verses 6 and 7 tell us what was most likely going to happen, happened. It was time for the baby to be born. And as these travelers, they reached their family's hometown of Bethlehem, and the town was full because travelers from all over were coming home. Therefore, there was no room in the inn. And so right there in the common courtyard, Luke tells us this, this manger where the animals are tied up. In that very humble place, Mary gave birth to Jesus. And as the text tells us, it seems that Joseph, that only Joseph was there, which as a man... I would say Joseph is quite a hero. The point is, is not the stable or even Joseph, or that it might have been cold or dark or all the other circumstances that maybe has been interjected in a sense because of our cultural understanding and stuff or how lonely they were. The point of this is this place that the Son of God was born was quite scandalous. The King of Kings... And the Lord of lords who is taking on flesh was born in such humble means. And it was in this small village that Jesus was born. And historically, we know why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Luke tells us. He was born because of the imperial decree of Caesar Augustus, this, this man who is pretending to be God. And this was no coincidence that Caesar happened to impose such a decree upon the whole empire at this particular time, forcing millions of people to, to go to their hometowns. But particularly this one couple who had to go to Bethlehem 
to be registered. And by God's decree, by God's sovereign decree, this emperor, who as we know from the scripture, is like a drop of water in the bucket to the Lord, is acting out the decree of the sovereign Lord. Because the Lord God of the word of God is not just powerful like Caesar was, but God is omnipotent, and his power is eternal and everlasting. The prophet Micah said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, and when it was time, when it was God's time, it happened. And in this narrative, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we see. We see the sovereign love and grace of God in display in what we celebrate today as his incarnation. When God became man, he condescended. He humbled himself. And this condescension, this incarnation, has perplexed the greatest and smartest of men throughout the, history, throughout the ages and continues to blow our minds even today. And I hope even this morning you are humbled and perplexed by the incarnation and the condescension of our God to take on flesh. Not just the great mystery of how God became man, but the who, the omnipotent, the omnipresent, the omniscient, the omnibenevolent God who took on flesh and was born as a baby. The incarnation is what I believe is one of the greatest evidences to us and to the world of God's love for his people. And here's how I know that, because from 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. It was, it was made manifest. Like, so just like what we see in this scene. Boom, here it is. Light shining in the darkness. It's made known to us. It says that God sent his only son into the world. How has his love been made manifest? He sent his son into the world. And this is the very means by which he has sent his son as a baby born in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph. And why? For what purpose? 1 John 4, 9. So that we might live through him. We get to live now through, through him. This is the greatest evidence, some of the greatest evidences of the love of God for his people in the condescension of Christ taking on flesh. He did not just appear to be a man, but he was actually in the flesh and blood. He was limited and finite, just like any one of us. And this is why he had to be born and not just appear on the scene, he was born to show and prove his humanity like us. And though he pre-existed, he was born. And as a baby, he was helpless. Paul puts it like this in Philippians 2. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, right? I mean, let's, let's think about that. The grandeur, the majesty, the glory of God. But he did not count equality with God to be thing, to be grasped, but he emptied himself. That's condescension. And he took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Before Christ was incarnated, he was like a symphony. Think of a symphony with the strings and the, the woodwinds, and the, which are the same thing, and the brass, and the drums, and the percussion. Magnificent when those timpanis go off. And you feel the power of, of, those, of, those, of that brass just pushing through, but yet in the middle of it, there is this glorious, beautiful strings that come right through that show the, the, the melody of the, of the beautiful arrangements. The symphony can be gentle. It can be beautiful. It can be rich and complex. But when Christ took upon human flesh, he put aside the symphony and he became like a folk tune that was simple and short. And putting aside the symphony, playing the folk song, he still, he, he lost nothing of his deity, of his eternality or his perfect character. He lost none of his attributes, his holiness, his justice, righteousness, purity, and his immutability. The infinite God became finite man, and yet still, mind-blowingly, was remained infinite God. And in doing this, the Son, the Son being born in the flesh as a baby, he was subjecting himself, the condescension, he was subjecting himself to his own creation, to physics, to biology, to natural law, chemistry, seasons, aging, even death itself. And he would experience what it was like to develop as a human in reason and in language. The Son of God could be taught and could learn. He thought and talked like a baby before before he thought, and then he thought and talked like a child, and then as a man. Can you imagine the humility of the Son of God to be like that? What condescension, what humility took place in the incarnation that the Son of God would need to learn something? The incarnation overwhelmingly, brothers and sisters and friends, it puts in our face the humility of the Son of God. And why? Why did he consider these things not something to be grasped again? 1 John 4, 9. Because this is the love of God on display. He became poor so that we can become rich in the grace of God. The incarnation not only shows his humility, but it also proves his divine sympathy for us. 
Hebrews 4.15 puts it like this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Now there's so much more to that text and what he's saying. But consider this, that if his, that if his humanity was just like ours in our birth, in our growth, in our learning, in our pain, and in our hurts, then he alone is uniquely able to sympathize with each and every one of us. Sometimes when I play my guitar in my office, or one of my guitars in my office, I can hear, and I play a certain chord or hit a certain note, I can hear the other guitars on my wall resound from that note. That's called sympathetic resonance. Pianos do the same thing if there's two pianos next to each other. And when a chord is struck in our humanity, in our weakness, in our fear, and in our pain, in our suffering, in our loneliness, grief, sadness, and even the chord of joy is played, that also resonates in him. Because he was like us. And that's what Hebrews is telling us. That's one facet of what, what Hebrews is, is, is telling us. There is, there is nothing in our own human experiences that does not resonate in Christ's as well. And this means that he not only has the capacity to sympathize with us in every single way, but that he can truly feel it. He doesn't just understand or can imagine how something feels he truly feels it. And this is such an amazing truth of the incarnation, of the love of God and the sympathy that he has for us. And the incarnation was also necessary for him to be our savior. And this is what the angels proclaimed to the shepherds. They already told Joseph and has already told Mary, but now to the to the shepherds, that the Savior was born this day in the city of David, and who is Christ the Lord, verse 11. And so because of his incarnation and this perfect identification with humanity, this is how he saves us. And as a real man in the flesh, he became that perfect substitute as only, uh, only man to live a perfect and sinless life. He alone was uniquely qualified to take upon him our sins and becoming sin of, of our own sin, becoming sin for us and to die in atoning death on the cross for us. Galatians 4 helps us out here in saying in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, right? That's our Savior, so that we might receive the adoptions as sons. So you see the, the link that's being made here between the incarnation of Jesus Christ at the fullness of time, the sovereignty of God in the fulfillment of the law to redeem those who are under the law as adoption as sons. We see from incarnation to Savior, to adoption, salvation. The baby that we read about this morning was born to die 
to die on the cross, to be a ransom, to redeem and bring about the adoption of his people. The incarnation, brothers and sisters, is not something we should pass by too quickly. It is glorious. God humbling himself to be like us in our humility, becoming sympathetic to all of our needs, and then uniquely becoming our Savior, bearing our sin on the cross. What mercy, what grace, what love. And God took this news, the greatest news in all of the universe, the news that prophets were longing to hear and to see. And he gave this news to shepherds in a field near Bethlehem. You could not get further from the elite in the aristocracy than shepherds. Shepherds are generally portrayed as cute little children dressed up in Christmas plays, but shepherds in the Bible were often considered the lowest of the society scale. Meaning they, they, could be, they couldn't be trusted with anything but sheep. Their testimony wasn't even allowed in court at times because of their reputation. Now who knows how they, they gained such a reputation, but we, we do know here in Luke 2 is that this wonderfully Glorious news was announced to him, them. And it was announced to them, as we read, in the most spectacular of ways. This wasn't a text message, you know, that Apple produces with the little thing. You set it, and you can make it go firework. Jesus is born. Oh, cool, man. It's Christmas. No, this lit up the sky with myriads and myriads of angel good news of great joy that will be for all people. They told them where they can find him. He's in Bethlehem. The shepherds witnessed then. They witnessed what the heavenly hosts were proclaiming. They were witnessing the worship of the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace among with whom he is pleased. All of heaven emptied to light up the sky before the shepherds. And I love the response of these guys in verse 15. I guess we should go to Bethlehem. How about it, Joe? Let's go. And what's evident here, brothers and sisters, in the announcement of the birth of his son to the shepherds is not, the, not just the amazement of the angelic choir seeing glory in the highest. The good news is that the glorious God is to worshiped and adored in the highest. And he made the lowest of all recipients to hear this good news, to hear the grace of God, the birth of his son. The shepherds heard this good news and they came to Jesus. They saw, they believed, they worshiped, and they went out and they proclaimed this news to others. So really quickly, as we, as we prepare to close this morning and move to the Lord's table in just a few minutes, I want to give you two things 
two things that have been implied, if you've heard it already, but implied through, is that number one, we are not the kind of people that deserve this kind of love. No matter what you may think, no matter what you may say or how you think you've conducted your life, this is true. We are not the kind of people that deserve this love. No one deserves this kind of love. Nobody in the Bible deserves this kind of love. Nobody in the history of the world deserves this kind of love. It's not Caesar, it's not the governor, nor the priests in Jerusalem, not even Mary or Joseph or the shepherds, not me, not you, or anyone else. Because the Bible tells us, and it blows a hole right in, our, in the foolishness of in our hearts when we think we actually deserve this. And it blows a hole right into popular religion and human secularism that, that or secular humanism that believes that man is, is good. Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that our righteous deeds are as all of our works are, are filthy rags, polluted garments before the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature, right? So this is what we don't deserve. By nature, we are children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And here is at the very heart of the, the gospel message, which, which then seems like this is the, the worst news of all time, that we're born, in our, or we're born in our sins and trespasses and sin, and we're guilty and we're condemned in our sins, and no one deserves that, this type of love. What do transgressors and vile and violent lawbreakers deserve then from God? We only deserve the wrath of God. And so here's at the point where we must understand when we come to this, this story, when we come to this Savior, we must have this understanding that this is, this is where we live. This is what we are bringing to the table. This is the posture, our sin. And yet it's that moment, that place, where we begin to see and delight in the grace of God and the incarnation becomes joyful. Because the second thing, the second thing I want to say is just as true as the first one. As much as we do not deserve this kind of love, number two, what's still very true, we see it here in chapter two, is that in love God sent his son. Still. In the great love of God, he has sent salvation to his people this is why we read verses like Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Though we were still enemies and though we were still vile and violent and wicked, Christ still died for us. Despite us, he still died for us. Remember where we started in 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that you might live through him. Nothing can compare to the glory of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in that grace, we now share because of the love of God. And we, today and every day and every Lord's Day when we gather together, we rejoice 
and we delight in his glory because of his love. We just, we sing it like the angels did. We stand in awe and amazement like the shepherds did. And in the quietness of our hearts and our souls, when you watch your, your, your friends, your family, your children, grandchildren open up their Christmas presents today, you treasure them like we treasure the gospel. We glory in so much of this world, brothers and sisters. How about we glory in this? How about we delight in, in this? This is our arena. And this is where we rejoice together with such great joy. So brothers and sisters, the gospel, the glorious good news of reconciliation and redemption has come to the lowest of low, to us. This is the kind of Christmas that we need. This is the kind of joy that we need. And this is the great joy that we come together to rejoice in this Christmas morning together. Brothers and sisters, so I say to you, Merry Christmas. And all God's people say,